Hello, welcome to our podcast. I'm Josh Way. I'm Dan Hammer. And we check out movies that one or both of us have seen in the past to find out how well they hold up. Hey, two questions for you, current event-wise, entertainment-wise. Did you see the the promotional still from Spielberg's West Side Story today? Yeah, and I had a really good I had a really good tweet <laughs> that nobody <laughs> liked. It was uh yeah, Maria, it's a script. I wrote it in script form. So Maria, Teodoro Anton, <laughs> and t- Tony Faldafea, Maria. <laughs> because what is that skirt? <laughs> and what's the uh, the Janusz Kaminski desaturated Saving Private Ryan cinematography? Yeah, it, it, it looks really weird. It looks real, real off. Yeah. I hope, I just hope that they're like Lala landing it up with the choreography and stuff, because this has to be interesting to be anything oh and the other thing i just wanted to mention to you and ask you about have you heard of a documentary called bathtubs over broadway no it is on netflix and i have not seen it but it was highly recommended on another podcast i listened to it's about the weird wild wacky world of uh industrial musicals corporate musicals Hmm. that were produced internally for like to entertain corporate audiences, but they're written and directed by like real Broadway talent. It's apparently this former head writer for David Letterman who kind of became obsessed with these things back in the, in the eighties. Um, they, their heyday was apparently back in like the sixties and seventies. And they would, they would produce these shows, perform them once and actually press cast album records as souvenirs for the employees that attend the performance to take with them and then nobody else ever knew about them and just little by little footage and 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 snippets of these things came out reminds me a little bit of the drowsy chaperones inception though it wasn't Mm. corporate it was this musical that they wrote in short form for i think a bachelor party or one of their friends just kind of going to all of that trouble of creating you know a musical for this like one-time occasion and of course it became something else but yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, so that's not a recommendation for me because I haven't seen it, but it's been recommended and I think I'm going to check it out. Secondhand recommendation. Yeah. Well, Dan, I only <laughs> yeah. saw one thing in the past week because I was away for the weekend. I didn't. I usually stream a couple things on the weekend, but I right. wasn't able to this week. Uh, what did you see this week? All right, so I have two things so we can go back and forth because I felt guilty about bringing nothing to the conversation last week. <laughs> so, yeah. And of course I do enjoy going to see movies. Right. But sure. Mostly, That's but mostly out of the guilt. to the premise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I went to see the tomorrow man mm. with John Lithgow and Blythe Danner. Are you aware of this film? Vaguely. Yes. Now that you say it. Yes. So I went in with no expectations and disappointed that at the time that was really the only thing I, that I could come up with that kind of fit my time and schedule. And I can see all the problems that people might have with this movie. And it's kind of mediocre in reviews, kind of a two and a half star sort of thing. Mm. And I really enjoyed it in the end. Oh. I felt that the screenplay went in really interesting and realistic directions rather than going with uh, things I would have thought to be more stereotypical or easy. 
Um, the performances are both good. Um, Blythe Danner especially makes some weird acting choices that in one sense I could be like, what is she doing? And kind of mock the performance, but then also think, you know what? This is more interesting than had she just played it by the numbers. Um, Lithgow is being Lithgow. Um, he plays this guy who has pretty much isolated himself, um, watches a Fox News-esque show endlessly, and is concerned for the end of the world. He walks up to get some gas, and a man who is not white is at the next pump. And even though that man smiles and waves at him, um, Lithgow runs away because this is just the beginning of what he knows is going to happen, this hostile takeover from foreign powers. And he gets some sort of comfort out of this bunker he has hidden under his house with resources and food and whatever else. But he runs into Blythe Danner in their local supermarket. And I don't know if she she's not new in town, but apparently this is the first time he has ever seen her. And he sees her paying with cash and buying some things that he thinks are along the lines of someone who also might think like he does. And so in kind of a creepy way, this is one of those things that if the film had a different soundtrack, you could think you were watching a horror movie at the beginning because he kind of um, has no boundaries with her and kind of stalks her. But the movie thinks they're meeting cute, whatever. That's what happens. And she ends up liking him too. She's a lonely person and they both kind of open up about how they've experienced loss in their families and they come to be this unlikely couple very late in both of their lives. And she's very much stuck in the past and he's very much worried about the future. And that all sounds contrived, you know, Oh, can they, can they meet in the present? And, and of course they do. Um, There was one moment near the end where I thought that they were really going to oversimplify a problem that she was having and just solve it as if by magic And then they didn't. They acknowledged that it kind of wasn't solvable and that they weren't going to be able to cover that in this film. And I really appreciated the honesty that the movie didn't have to have, but they had it anyway. And then the final moment I just loved. It's something where you think we must be outside of reality, but based on everything that's come before, it was surprising and made my imagination soar. And I wanted to make sense of the final image and what it means in light of everything else we've seen. And it just, I left the theater thinking, wow, I've had a wonderful experience with uh, some characters that I liked and a screenplay that could have just been so boring. And instead it was different and sometimes weird. So that's a recommend for me. Wow. So you did your good deed and uh, took care of this little movie that's getting piled on by everybody else. Yeah. I mean, leave it to me to like the thing. <laughs> That other people says says just isn't up to snuff. Well, cool. I feel like I must have watched a trailer for that or something sometime, but it's not not a lot of buzz, at least in my in my circles. Is oh, it a, none at all? Is it a dark movie, a comedy? Is it played as romantic comedy? How is it played? Because there's more going on than the romance. It really is a slice of life character study. It has a great directorial point of view. You're not just watching the events unfold. The direction and the shots are very intentional. Yeah, uh, I, I appreciated that a lot about the movie. And the characters accept one another. They have really honest conversations. There is one revelation later in the movie that has to do with the news program that he's constantly watching that seems to be stoking his fear. And uh, what we find out about that gives it new meaning. And I think it actually is a pretty good um, comment 
perhaps on the MAGA crowd and really what they're drawn to on these news shows and how it's a method of processing grief and loss as much as it is a stoking of fear. Mm-hmm. But they but they aren't heavy handed with it. They just sort of present that idea and let it sit in the air while other things happen with the plot, wow. which I liked. Yeah. All right. Well, you've put it on my radar. Yeah. I think that uh, in 20 years, I might choose that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. For show 3,622? Yeah, totally. Nice. All right. What did you see? I saw Men in Black International. Oh, okay. For my sins and yours. Amazing. Now, I also watched, not all in one night or even one week, but I caught up on the Men in Black films. I didn't remember which ones I'd actually seen, so I checked them out on the way to this movie. And I don't love any of them. The original one I remember being a little bit energized by as a kid, thinking it was cool, at least this idea of colorful, rubbery aliens and guys with guns and whatever but yeah so those movies are, are they get pretty abysmal as they go the new one is not as terrible as i feared but it's not great um, i want to hear all about it all right so now you dan do you have any familiarity with this franchise or is it just one of those things that you're aware of but no no thank you please i absolutely saw the original mm-hmm. okay. i don't remember much except that will smith was in it yeah and Tommy Lee Jones? Yes. Oh, good for me. Good job. And they erase people's memories. Yes. Who encounter aliens. Right. And these aliens are not particularly menacing. They're kind of yucky, humorous, yeah. dumb things. They're comedy bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna have a few words for the whole franchise in a moment, but I'll just very, very briefly describe and and critique this new one. Um so yeah, it's it's a reboot. It's been, I don't know, what is it, 13 years or something since the last No, it was 2012 the last one. So it's only been 7 years since since the last Men in Black movie. Uh but this is a reboot. This there's only one strand of continuity to the old ones and that is Emma Thompson, who I didn't realize. I thought she was new to this iteration, but she was in the third one. And so her character is the only one who's the same. And now there's a new cast. Liam Neeson is also one of the big shots at the agency. And Chris Hemsworth is uh, kind of the hot shot young agent who is always like everybody hates him because he gets all the big scores and he takes down all the big bad guys. But there's a, some hint that there's a dark secret going on. And Tessa Thompson, who is wonderful all the time, uh, is a kid who whose memory men in black failed to erase after an incident, her parents saw an alien and so did she, but their memories were erased. They didn't get her. So she grows up kind of this conspiracy theorist and she's seeking it out. And she actually finds her way to the men in black and barges in and, and and insists that she should be on the team. And then eventually she becomes a woman in black and is partnered with Chris Hemsworth. And they go on this kind of international, you know, facing bad guys, finding the thing, solving the mysteries. And then there's the revelations about this person who you thought was bad is not. And this one is, and there's a mole in men in black and Kumail Nanjiani voices, this tiny, little tiny alien that they cut to for really horrendous comic relief every few seconds. And nobody, nobody ever reacts to what he said. So it's really kind of like, it feels like it was spliced in after the fact, I guess I was surprised how 
much it was in the spirit of the older ones. It looked like it would be a little more slick and a little more of the moment, but it actually does carry on the kind of goofy, rubbery aliens and uh, and that kind of feeling. This is what occurred to me, though, watching all of these movies in the space of a couple of weeks. I don't I've never heard anybody really go off about this. So maybe I'm being nitpicky or weird and, and overanalyzing something that's just meant to be popcorn fun. But does it bother anyone else that these are movies where a the aliens are always ethnic stereotypes and almost always criminals and b that the heroes are law enforcement peoples who always show up with guns drawn to and verbally abuse and then disintegrate the bad guys. I just that really like, especially cumulatively watching all of them in a row, it became really bothersome to the point where it really felt inappropriate. It felt really somebody has to like speak up, right? This is not okay, right? Well, that does sound problematic at the very least. Uh, so what what do we know of the aliens? What is their intention on the earth? What are they here to do? Now, I, I, I'm thinking back through, and I guess there's a few aliens here and there who are just kind of like little street rats. They're, they're all portrayed as some kind. They feel like immigrants. Especially, you know, It takes place in New York yeah. City, and they all run these little shops, or they have a trench coat full of things they can sell you from another planet. But so there's some that are, I guess, the less, the more friendly ones are still criminals. And then they're mostly crime bosses or like royalty from another planet, and you have to show them a good time, but there's an assassin after them. So it's all this kind of intrigue and it's heightened to a cartoonish level because it's aliens, but they always, it's, it's kind of like the, the criticism that some of the star Wars movies get where, why do all of the crazy alien voices happen to sound like stereotypes from American entertainment of the past? But they're not organized in any way, right? The aliens, it's not like they're from another world and they're there to make war with earth. Usually it's that. Yeah. Usually it's just that they're so men in black, the attitude of the agents when they go into the alien communities is always, we're watching you. Remember what we told you. We're letting you stay here and do this as long as you don't eat all the cats or whatever, you know, like it's. Well, that does sound like nonsense then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It feels like nonsense. One time there was a musical that our church did when I was growing up and it was a send up of Star Trek. And. Wow. The two alien characters were had were cast with the only two kids of color in the production. Oh I know, and of course, from my vantage point at the time, I didn't even take notice of that. Yeah, yeah. And then one of the kids' grandmothers spoke up about it, and of mm. course, she was right. What 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 are we saying in sending? That's a terrible thing. Right, right. And it sounds like that's what is going on here. Yes. But I just realized I'd never heard anybody make those complaints. I don't know if it's because Will Smith is so charismatic that it just it's kind of it used to be a vehicle for him. And now that it's not centered around him, maybe it was more obvious to me watching it like now. I don't know. Yeah, but it's different from the first time that movie came out as far as not necessarily what's happening, but social awareness. Nothing gets by Twitter, you know, to a fault. Right. Right. It's surprising that 9,000 people aren't all over this. No one's reviewing Green Book based on its entertainment value. Right. Yeah. I, I guess this is also a bomb, and, and generally people have met it with yawns. So it's not like a phenomenon anymore. That might be one of the reasons that it just is fizzling out. It might not be That's worth true. the engagement. 
So how many stars is this? Oh, uh, I think <laughs> I gave it a generous two on Letterboxd because it was at least colorful and had some laughs. One thing I'll give this series credit for also is putting interesting actors in supporting roles. So in the first couple, you had Vincent D'Onofrio, you had uh, Tony Shalhoub. The third one had Jermaine, Jermaine Clement and uh, Michael Stuhlbarg, Bill Hader. So, and the new one has uh, some interesting people show up as well. But Well, they're all racists, obviously. Yeah. And everyone associated with it and everyone who, and, and anyone who never had the courage to say what I've said here tonight is obviously a giant racist. Well, frankly, I mean, I'm, I'm being a, a jerk making a joke like that, but it does sound like you're onto something. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with the franchise. It is what it is. Put it out there. These movies are terrible. If you like them, you're a bad person. Um, you have a rant of your own, don't you, Dan? I don't mean to set it up like that and <laughs> put you on the spot. Well, you told me though on, I, on Messenger that you had. Can I guess what you saw that set you off? Yes. You saw Shaft. No, I didn't. All right. Josh, I saw Ma. Oh, you saw Ma. You did it. You pulled the trigger on Ma. I did. Did you see Ma? I did not see Ma. Okay. I mean, I would be fascinated by your take, yeah. but I wouldn't want to subject you to something like that. So. Ma tells the tale of Maggie, played by Diana Silvers, who was also in Booksmart, the uh, young woman with which Amy has that bathroom yes. encounter. Yeah, I noticed. That. Yeah. And I like Diana Silvers as an actress. She has this way of portraying and kind of a whatever attitude without being gross about it. It's like there's no negativity or hostility in her whatever attitude just she's there and life is happening and I, I don't know it reads very real to me so I like her and she is going to a new school in the middle of the year because her mom played by Juliette Lewis um, by the way to depress a percentage of the audience that Juliette Lewis is playing a mom with a high schooler yeah um, she and her, her mom and her dad are getting divorced and so mid-year She's moving back to her mom's hometown and has to start school in the middle of the year. So it's the first day of school and she's eating her lunch alone. And this other girl, Haley, comes over and pretty aggressively grabs Maggie's phone and puts her number in it and saying, you're going to be our friend now and we're going to go to a party this weekend and you're going to party with us and you're going to like it, basically. Mm -hmm. And there's like three boys that are hanging out with her. And Maggie's like, well... I can't. I'm going to a music festival this weekend with my mom. And Haley's like, oh, you'd rather hang out with your mom and her loser friends? Loser, you know. <laughs> Walks away. Well, that was kind of weird. Cut to home the next day, and Maggie's mom's going to work. Why are you going to work? We're going to the music festival. Oh, I have to work. And so they're not going to the music festival, so she has Haley's number, calls her up, or texts or whatever. This van pulls up with the other kids. Maggie gets in the van. Oh, the party's been canceled, so we're just going to drive around. Is that okay? Now, I bring all this up. Thrilling story so far. Because all of these things happen. All these turnabouts happen within about a minute and a half. Wow. And I'm like, what is up with the screenplay that wouldn't have just had Haley invite her to drive around with them the next day? And she go, oh, that'd be great. Because that's ultimately what happened. And there was no stake in any of the changes. Right. The whole movie is oh, like boy. this. Did it need to and introduce so the mother character? Because I know that becomes significant. 
Do they what? Did introduce? it need to introduce the mother character? Is that why they did all that extra runaround? No, I mean, there was an earlier scene as they're getting ready for school that sort of explains Newtown and we're going to do our best and you can do it, honey, and I'm here for you. So we know the mother mm-hmm. character. And now we're driving around and this is the part we've seen in the trailer where they're trying to buy booze and it's not working out. And Ma turns up walking a three-legged dog and agrees <laughs> to do this after originally saying not after she takes a very long look and the camera gives us her point of view of looking at the van they're in because it's a business van for one of the kid's dad's businesses. So there's some significance. That's what makes her change her mind to buy this stuff for them. And so they tell her where they're going to be going and soon the police come and no one deduces that the police had been called by Ma because who else would have alerted them? to go to this desolate space, you know? And so they're there. And then they do this again because Ma now, I guess, is their go-to person to buy them booze and she's just okay with this. Um, But this time she wants to do the drop-off at her house so that it doesn't happen in the open. And so she lures them out to this country house and takes them into her basement. You can drink here, that's safer. And at this point, we have no inkling that Ma has any plan just she's invited them in now here's an interesting part one of the young men looks around the basement and is like wow you could get a great sound system and a ping pong table and some other couches get a table for snacks you know you could really pimp out this place ma and then he turns completely in his demeanor and he's like unless you're not cool like that unless you're a loser unless you're a loser ma you loser you know, now at this point, any emotionally healthy adult might respond by telling him to watch his tone or by letting it go. Ma responds by sexually assaulting him at gunpoint in front of his understandably horrified friends. And when Ma is finished, she kind of breaks and laughs. <laughs> I was just kidding. And everyone just kind of like buckles over in laughter. Oh, even the boy who she'd assaulted as he's pulling his underwear back on. You really had me, Ma. Goodness. <laughs> and nobody seems to think that that was a problem or that they need to worry about this at all. Now, there's another scene at the school. I'm just going to go off here because sure. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have this whole thing. It's all spoilers. There's another scene early on at the school. You know, first day, she's looking at a map, trying to find her first class, can't find it. No one will help her. Suddenly, the bell rings. Everybody runs in a room and slams the door. You know, one of those situations. And she's left alone in the hallway. And there's a girl in a wheelchair struggling to get up a ramp. Now, it would be racist of me to think that because this young girl is black and has Ma's exact same haircut, that she has something to do with Ma. But the screenplay thinks that you'll be fooled and won't think this. So it turns out this is Ma's daughter who, except for that one day of school, she traps in her upper level of her house. And have you ever watched the act, Patricia Arquette? No. That's the real life story about a mother who pretended her daughter had an illness. Gypsy Rose. Right, exactly. So that's what's going on here. Ma is pretending that this girl has an illness 
and that's why she can never go to school and why she must be imprisoned in the house. Why exactly? We're not sure, except, I guess, to shield her from the evils of the world. Because we come to discover that Ma had high school trauma at the hands of all of the parent figures of the children mm-hmm. who, you know, it seems unlikely to me that everybody in one graduating class would have children like at the exact same time. So as to raise them up in the same town and have them all appear back in school together the same year as parallels of the yeah. past in exactly this way, that seems unlikely, but that's what's happened. And so Ma's working out her trauma of how she'd been bullied and assaulted herself at the hands of these parents. And so crescendos and menace, there is one wonderful piece of stunt casting, which was the only thing I liked about this movie. And we get to this place. So Ma works in a veterinary hospital and that's how she has contact to all of her former classmates because they bring their pets in for care, but only newly because you see there'd been another vet, vet in town that just closed down. And so now everyone's suddenly bringing their pets to this other place. And they do things like Juliette Lewis walks in with her dog and for the intake form, she put, she's like, oh, I don't have time for this right now. Can you just like take the dog? She like runs out. <laughs> Wouldn't you think you'd leave any information about yourself rather than just dropping off your beloved pet with a stranger in a vet uh, office? Says no. You know, right. And the dad of the boy with the van, you know, he comes in, he's a new customer and, he's, and he recognizes her. Of course, this is my old classmate. And how have you been? I, I never knew what happened to you. Well, how is that possible when you live in the same small town? How is it possible you've never run into this person that I would think you remembered because it turns out you set in motion the events that led to her sexual assault and knew about it? You'd think that those that's the sort of thing you don't really forget. Yeah. 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 And so he invites her out for drinks, even though he has a girlfriend. And at the the meetup he then confronts her because he has gps on his van and knows that his son's been spending time at her house and what's she up to well anyway it culminates with a huge party at ma's these parties have been going on all the time by the way with hundreds of kids coming to these parties it seems impossible that a party like that in a small town or any size town could be kept quiet that hundreds of students are going to almost every day seems hard to believe yeah. that it'd be a secret. But anyway, there's imprisonment and tortures and houses started on fire and people trapped in a basement and completely predictable happenings of how they escape. Mm-hmm. There is a cross-species blood transfusion sure. <laughs> that occurs in Ma's bedroom because Maggie finds so her dog... Ble- I know Maggie finds her dog bleeding in the backyard and she doesn't know, like the dog seems relatively unharmed, but why is it bleeding? And then we see in the distance, maybe some pink pants through the mist and Ma wears pink pants because Ma needed to collect blood from the dog. But why does Ma need to collect blood from this person's random dog when she works at a vet hospital and has access to a lot of animals that are there being boarded? And we know she was there because she took a minute before the final slaughter to brutally murder her supervisor. (laughs) So why not get that dog's blood on the way? It just, it it was, it was not, it was thinking, not thinking smarter, Ma. And it just ends up with a house burned down and 
mob burning up on purpose in it and everyone who should escape escaping albeit with the marks of ma's random tortures and that would be a good tagline for the movie actually a random torture how many so how many red flags and opportunities to like back away and get out of the situation are there before things ramp up to the uh, mayhem at the end there are so many opportunities. The kids are obviously drugged because she has access to all sorts of vet meds that I guess they don't count because she's been stealing them for years to anesthetize her daughter. And so they wake up and their jewelry is missing. The She's stealing things from them. Ma leaves booze by their van at school and is sending them video messages. Come on, party at Ma's van! You know? <laughs> And it's getting weirder and weirder, and they have to block her on all their phones because she sends endless texts and endless video messages. She shows up at school. There are random race themes throughout because there's one kid in their friend group who's also black, and he makes remarks to Ma about how two of them came here in slave ships and stuff like that. And then in the final scenes, she you know paints his face white because in her words, there's only room for one of us. But what does that mean? In what scenario is there only room for one of us? And so you can't just um, cast a famed African-American actress and then include lines like that in the screenplay and not beg questions about if if you're trying to make any statements on the racial dynamics. An actress like her doesn't do a project like this unless she really wants to and probably has some kind of voice in the production. I would think so. I understand that she went to the uh, director and just said that she wanted the opportunity to do something completely different. And I get that desire in her professionally because I do think that she gets a little pigeonholed and she has a lot more to offer. And the reality is she does offer uh, a great deal of talent to this role a lesser actress, it would have been unwatchable. She's she's bringing something interesting here, but we we didn't have any we didn't have a good sense of tone. There wasn't a strong directorial hand on the proceedings because, of course, some of it is so ridiculous and campy and funny. She's yelling at an old woman as she's trying to get a pedicure. This has nothing to do with the plot. Just she starts barking and yelling, yo, bitch, you know, and the old lady's yelling right back, and they're getting in this altercation at the at the nail salon. What is that about? I mean, it's only funny. <laughs> That's the only way to receive right. a scene like that. But then there are scenes that show deep trauma and intense human cruelty that try to give a backstory as to how she became got to this place where she's willing to offer that cruelty back to others. Um, we get the sense that there was no plan in her mind when she met those kids that she was trying to harm them. It it was truly random that she ran into them. And she, at first, liked just being a part of the group because she had been ostracized and isolated. And this having these parties gave her purpose. And she felt like she was one of this friend group. And it was only when they started to get creeped out Uh, because she was just overbearing and wanted them there all the time, even when it didn't work with their schedule, that she began to get more demanding. 
And that's where things went south. And everyone would rather die than tell their parents, even though the parents know even better than the kids, it turns out, what might be going on because they know this woman from years ago. And it is very, very idiot plot where just the one or two words that would have solved everything are never said. Well, I will be streaming this at my first convenience. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And throughout the house, there are African masks that are supposed to be scary. Yeah, where they just open the door and that's the first thing you see of the upstairs. You're kind of giving this vision that somehow something that is uh, tribally tribal or historically significant with someone's heritage is something to be afraid of. And later, one of the, the, the girl who she's trapped upstairs, when the other girls have broken into the house to try to find the things they think Ma stole, she scares them with one of those masks. Hmm. Like as a gotcha, she's just glad to have company. And what is that message? Yeah. So Dan, put this on the uh, the Greta bonkers scale. Well, it's more it's much more bonkers than Greta. Greta was better written than this. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like this the screenplay just with a once over from someone else could have been vastly improved. Things like if you need a device to get the mom out of town to allow for Maggie to go to a party she's not supposed to go to, you could have chosen anything. But you know what it was? It was, oh, it's an out-of-state conference for casino workers. (laughs) Wouldn't you know it that my work as a cocktail waitress is going to require me to go out-of-state for a state-regulated industry for training on how to be a better cocktail waitress. You know, people with those jobs are always going out of state for conferences. Sure. Along with their best gay friend, Stu, who also works at the casino. Couldn't it have been anything else that would have taken her out of town last minute instead of something that obviously doesn't exist and isn't real? I feel like consistently I accuse move new movies of having a script that needed another couple passes. I feel like there's such an epidemic issue of underwritten badly. Like, I guess it's just because of the way projects are pushed through and developed that standards are different or just the, the, the pipeline is different for certain types of movies. But so many, I would say that for men in black international, I would say that for so many things that I've seen recently. I think that that is true. And I don't know what that's about. I don't know if they think, oh, it'll be fine. We'll just start shooting and we'll fix it as we go if we're on that kind of a crunch because that doesn't make something better. It makes it worse. Yeah. Like this screenplay has obvious problems, surface problems that I feel like even I, a complete amateur and novice, could just go through with a red pen and say, not this line, not this thing, change this to that, and it would be an improved screenplay. Also, what is this? Is it a comedy? Is it a thriller? Is it an intimate human portrait with a horror ending? You've got to know what it is that you're shooting. The director sure didn't know what was being shot. And it just ran all over the place with tone and genre. So a recommendation from Dan on Ma. Definitely a four and a half star. All right. Well, anything else, Dan, before we take a break? That was my rant. That's it. All right. Well, I enjoyed it. (laughs) Good. Let's take a little breather. We're going to come back and talk about the tree of life.
Welcome back. Josh and Dan are here, ready to talk about our feature for the week. And it was my selection, so here I go. Uh, Yeah, okay, so The Tree of Life. The Tree of Life is a 2011 film directed by Terrence Malick, starring Brad Pitt, Jessica Chastain, Sean Penn, and young Hunter McCracken. It is part family drama, part cosmic odyssey, part spiritual journey, and centers around the life of a cultured but humble middle-class family in a small Texas town in the 1950s. Sean Penn plays present-day adult Jack, who is looking back on the wonder and confusion and pain of his childhood. And the movie, which um, opens with a verse from the Book of Job on a title card and features extended sequences of the Big Bang evolution and primordial life on Earth and dinosaurs, frames itself between two points of view, two ways of living, the way of nature embodied by Pitt as Jack's harsh and pragmatic father, and the way of grace embodied by Chastain as his impossibly radiant and loving mother. So this film was like a chemical reaction for me the first time I saw it about five or six years ago. Um, I guess I've never seen a movie that captures so viscerally and artfully the actual experience of being a child and experiencing the world as a child and curiosity and hormones and religion and science and wonder and anger and all these things swirling and intoxicating a child's growing mind. And uh, it's all portrayed in an impressionistic style that is singular and very arresting. Um, I'm very into this movie, if that's not clear so far, but I actually, I'm actually not that familiar with, with Malick's overall filmography. Um, and I, I have a couple other of his titles on Criterion that I actually haven't watched yet. But this this movie just clicked for me. It worked for me. It washed over me. And I, I know that it is a potentially divisive movie. And I want to talk more about that in a minute. It strikes some people as pretentious and heavy handed. But I bought in completely and um, it makes me weep. It, it, it just resonates with the way that I feel and kind of some of the this, this, this same artifacts and baggage are, I guess, in my my memory and in my mind and my heart as are explored in this movie. So I feel a lot in a lot of ways it's speaking directly to me. So I want to talk a little bit more about the reception of this movie and, and different types of people who like it and don't like it. But I want to throw to you, Dan, and ask what your background, if any, is with the movie and your your general impressions upon watching it this time. Well, I was aware of this movie's existence. It's a title that I'd heard of, and I knew it was an Oscar player that year. I didn't see it, so this watch for this episode is my first time seeing it, and I didn't do any research or anything. So I'm watching it 
and I'm waiting for Rachel Vice, and it's about halfway through that I realized that this is not Aronofsky's The Fountain, not the Fountain, yeah, which which is what I thought it was. Wow, yeah. And so, what is my experience of this movie? I didn't think it was pretentious. I didn't think it was heavy-handed. It was one of those movies that I could look at and say, okay, they should have cut this and this and this, but then of course that would ruin it. Mm-hmm. Right. I, you know, as I'm watching it and I'm watching all the cosmic stuff happening and the primordial stuff and we're getting the dinosaurs and that one dinosaur has some mercy, you know, couldn't we always go back to the dinosaurs in any movie and show one dinosaur articulating to another a theme later in the film. But this is so far reaching and I don't know what I would take out if I'm honest. It really mm-hmm. is a, a whole, it really is whole cloth to be experienced uh, for what it, what it is. And overall, I would say that I enjoyed it. It didn't speak to me as strongly as it sounds like it speaks to you. I have, um, personal reservations uh-huh. about the nostalgia of childhood because of course you look back and you think oh how wonderful that looks these you know small town and the big lawns and the open space and spending all day playing and having fun and we we bear that in our in our memories this film was to me shot like memory just these little snippets and they go back and forth one thing to another um but of course life then was really terrible in a lot of ways. And there was a lot of repression and a lot of cruelty and a lot of having to express in a certain way or being punished pretty brutally for it. And it was not all good, that that upbringing. And so I hold the tension uh, between the nostalgia and the reality um, pretty pretty firmly as I watch this movie. So I, yeah, here's my thing. I'm trying to decide which to launch into next. I have, I have my overall description of how I interpret, you know, the movie and why I think I agree with you. There's things that feel bloated and extra, but if you lose them, you lose a lot, uh, a lot of load bearing things, even if it feels like there are too many things. Um, but I also want to just talk about the the film and its, its, its audience. So I, it's a divisive movie. It usually gets, you know, if it, there's some kind of a user scoring system, it usually rates around a five or a six because there's a lot of people that love it and a lot of people that hate it. And I actually have more sympathy for people who just don't get it or it's not for them than for the people who have really embraced this, which include a lot of reformed theology bros. It's a oh, very, no. yes, it's a very popular. The yes, it's a very popular pub theology movie. Because of the whole thing of the way of grace and the way of nature and the, I I don't, I actually disagree. I don't think this is a religious movie. I think just because this movie has some moving spiritual themes and some God talk, I don't know that that means that it's saying what everybody would want it to say. So uh, no, it absolutely isn't. And you're going to set me off with this because (laughs) the the God of Calvinism is the God of nature in this movie. Yes, the yes. the one of cruelty and the one of punishment and the God of grace has no place in the Theobrogen's world. Not yes. at all. This idea that 
actually, actually the only, you know, we've gotten ourselves here by way of nature and by way of cruelty and cataclysm and survival of the fittest. But if we're ever going to evolve past any of this, we have to get rid of those impulses, impulses that are deeply wired within us. So it's not even a tension of one and the other. If we're to survive, we have to give ourselves over to grace that rejects any sort of uh, punishment or recompense or cataclysm or fit of anger or whatever else be be that fit of anger in our souls or the lava that bursts up through the earth as as a enactment of that so i feel to for the theobrogens to do this at pub theology they are intentionally misrepresenting and misinterpreting this film from the very beginning go go on no, no, totally. We're well, then we're we're on board with this, and I, I think it's fascinating, given all of that, that this movie starts with a quote from Job. That I think, I think between the Job verse, which is uh, "Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world?" and it's basically, you know, God answering the question of human suffering with a "Stop bothering me." Uh, and I'm I'm not really sure, even in the writing of Job, that that's meant to be a satisfying answer. But then the mother comes in at the beginning of the film with the way of grace and the way of nature. And to me, that's the key to experiencing the whole thing. Yes. And, and, and that's why that whole sequence of creation and primordial, that's, you know, th- they give you they give you this setup. They kind of tell you what the themes are going to be. You get this glimpse of who the family is. You get the telegraph about the son dying, the middle child dies. And then you have kind of this, the theodicy begins. God or the universe is on trial for this horrible tragedy. And then all of that primordial content, even with the little flashes of mercy that are found in it, that's the way of nature. That's nature's answer. So to me, that first half is loaded with this kind of the, the, the cosmic weight of just existence and the vastness. And why would you think that your feelings matter? And that's the way of nature. And then it's about a character who through memory and spirituality and forgiveness has to find his way to the way of grace, which is hidden, which is not uh, easily accessed, which does not come easily or naturally. You know, I think God, if you like the God of Job and you think that he gives a good answer at the end of Job, then you're probably going to read this movie incorrectly. I agree with you. I, 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 my take on Job is kind of God's, I'm not perfect, but can you do better? And if I look at the vastness of the universe, I, I can't do any better. We'll litigate Job in another podcast, I, I suppose, when the Job movie comes out, when the Job oh. movie musical comes out next year. Job is my pick for next week. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, but, but but as for the movie, yeah, so I, I, I guess I basically addressed both of those things I wanted to say about the weird audience for this movie, but also for how how, how I read the movie and the experience of watching it. Um, I guess if I had to critique this movie, uh, it's not actually that hard to do and people have done it pretty fervently since it came out. The stuff with Sean Penn feels a little underbaked and it feels that feels the most, that's the closest it gets to feeling pretentious and film schooly is when you just have this guy walking around the city kind of looking around forlorn to me. It's when you go into the memory the, the bulk of the movie where you spend time in the um in his childhood that's the stuff that resonates the most with me and feels the most real the stuff with sean penn i think is necessary because that's the whole point of the of the movie i also think you miss 
some of the key material of the actual plot as little as it feels like there's actual plot in this movie it's kind of just easy to miss that he's on the phone with his father in the beginning and he's basically forgiving him uh but you haven't experienced enough with the family to really for that to have any impact yeah i wasn't sure why he was present in the movie especially cast uh with someone of his caliber it brings extra weight to that character from the beginning um a weight that let's say even jessica chastain at the time was was accumulating but not even to that level and so it's kind of like oh we've got sean penn that must be an important role actually it's not really to me yeah i feel like it could have been taken out completely only it kind of led to the ending of seeing a natural thing along with a human made thing kind of existing together. Mm -hmm. And his was the setting. You're talking about the final shot. Yeah. The bridge. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I also bounce around. I like that. The ending is not easily um, the ending on the beach is not so easily interpretable. He didn't go to heaven because he's still alive, but I, I feel like it's his spiritual journey of finding I guess this this death really disrupted this family and it took their already uh, problematic relationships and kind of just put a, a giant wedge in between everybody. And this is this is Jack as a as an adult finding his way back to love and grace and forgiveness in, in regards to his father and, and probably with the universe itself, with God for, uh, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about this movie is the way that it kind of throws lament again narration is something that can be cheesy it's something that can be considered pretentious but the little whispering things uh the the naivete or the the curiosity of a child uh when one of the kids says can it happen to anybody or when they say you know to god you, you took my brother if you're not good why should i try to be good like just those little moments of just saying honest things out loud and aiming them at heaven there's something about that that i find really invigorating but I don't know what exactly is going on in that big ending where they're all together. And I, I don't want to, I stop short of criticizing the movie for not making sense or for being all over the place because that's its style. It's impressionistic. And I mentioned to you last time, there's a director's cut of the movie that is 50 minutes longer. Yeah, that's unbearable. And um, interestingly enough, the extra material is all, in that middle section, mostly in that middle section with the family. And it gives a lot more shape to that childhood stuff. When father Brad Pitt goes to China, there's more stuff about the family being left at home. Her, the mom's family comes to visit. There's more structure and more information um, that I don't think, I don't know that I want more structure. I certainly don't want more length in the movie. Uh, I'm kind of happy with it the way it is feeling like a fever dream and being more impressionistic. I agree. I mean, as it is, it it's just right. It doesn't need to make sense or come to any conclusions for me. I don't feel that we really got to see what the effect of that death was on the family. Um, it, yeah, I'm it completely just inferring of, that. Yeah, it, clearly it has had the weight because we see that in Sean Penn's character. Um, but that's not the study of the movie. It just we know right. that there's this death that then looms large in retrospect over these very human, very relatable childhood memories. Not everybody is going to be interested in a impressionistic rumination on the nature of existence, especially for 139 minutes. 
I don't know. To me, that's this movie's a unique experience. I can't really feel things like this from most movies, and I find that it just it, it ignites my brain and heart in a specific way. Certainly, that um, things like church haven't done. So, I, on a spiritual level, I really appreciate just just the the opportunity to feel and and explore the things that this movie brings to the table. Um, yeah, I agree. Did you like Boyhood? I did. It didn't affect me in the same way, but I, I, it has similar themes and, and a similar, um, you know, reflection on on boyhood, on childhood, and in in Texas too, for that matter. Correct? Yeah, I don't remember if it was in Texas. I think of it because there was something transcendent in it, actually being the characters that you're following for right. all of those years, um, because you're actually watching someone's actual. <laughs> Yeah, growth and and there's meaning in that, even if that doesn't necessarily have to do with the actual plot points of the screenplay. Yeah, I really admire Malik and his willingness to do whatever he thinks of, but with kind of a grace and a wisdom of an older filmmaker, instead of kind of being flashy and crazy and subversive, like maybe another filmmaker would have been. Like I'm just thinking of things that the whole sequence, the primordial sequence. Uh, but also just little things like there's one shot where Jessica Chastain is, is floating in the yard mm-hmm. and there's nothing, nothing made of it. It's just, it's just an impressionistic moment of, of how this, you know, how ethereal this kid's experience of his mother was. But I don't know. I just like that there are things that are over the top, but are not flashy, if that makes any sense. Yeah. There's a lot of great images. It's really well crafted. It, uh, makes its points. I think it tells the story it wants to tell in in image um, as well as with what's said. I'm glad that I saw it. I don't know that it. I would say it's one of my favorites, but I certainly admire the film. Yeah, I. it's one of my very favorite movies, but I forget about it. My experience with it is so intense that when I don't think about it for a few years, it kind of falls completely out of my orbit. And then when I see it again, I, it all rushes back and I'm like, oh my God, this movie, I forgot. And uh, so I went and added it to those top five in um, in Letterbox, so I wouldn't forget. Well, now that it's there, yeah, that's it. It's official. That's it. It's official. You've let the world know. I come away with questions. I think it's a satisfying experience. I don't think it is a message movie, but it, I guess the big question I have on a philosophical level coming away from this experience is: Why is the way of nature so? brutal and unjust and harmful while the way of grace is so hidden and must be sought and is so easily lost. And I guess I'd add to that, why are Christians, people who lay claim to the way of grace through Christ, the ones who are in our time fighting so fervently to preserve the ways of nature? These are just things I scribbled down while I was watching Tree of Life. Well, the gate is narrow. This is true. The road that most people would see that through is not is not the way. Yeah. And I guess that's why this movie is, is beautiful and elevating to me, but it's also melancholy and, and makes me weep because even when you watch a lot of film and you consume a lot of art, you don't see a whole lot of things that are this flagrantly, I don't know, at least to me, for my for my particular wavelength. This is just uh, a glimpse at something so beautiful that's so at odds with almost everything I will experience in a normal day. It's a, it's it's refreshing, but it's also makes me sad. 
Yeah, well, they it has a truth to tell, and that truth is elusive as the resurrected Christ, as they say. <laughs> and if it were always here and easy to analyze and measure, then it wouldn't be the special thing that it is. And dinosaurs. And dinosaurs. Well, thanks for taking this journey with me, Dan. Um, I feel like this might be my Mulholland Drive. I don't know. If, I mean, it's obviously it couldn't be a more different movie, but in terms of having a special place in my heart and being excited to to just hear what your experience is with it and uh, not trying to... Was I nice enough to you it? You were. <laughs> I hope you weren't on eggshells feeling like you had to be nice to it. No, I wouldn't do that. I'd go the way of nature, <laughs> not of grace. I guess sometimes it's appropriate. <laughs> yeah. All right, Dan. Well, um, I look forward to finding out what your selection is for our next conversation. It is 2006's The Fountain. Oh, look no. at that. Um, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> That'll be a good running gag. Yeah. I've never seen oh, it. Okay. Um, I want to do Crash. Oh, okay. So I feel bad giving any money to that movie. Right. To uh, stream it. Oh, but yeah. I'm I'm going to do All it. Right. I will check it out and I will look forward to our... Uh, conversation dan awesome all right we have been dan and josh this has been our podcast you can follow us both on twitter and letterboxd our show is at holds up pod on twitter our music is by jonah rapino and we will check you out next time thanks a lot bye did you like crash at the time i don't think so i th- and i may have recolored it given how what the attitudes are about this movie over time i may have just you know projected them back but i remember feeling like i remember rolling my eyes at this movie i'm fascinated to see what i think yeah. at at the time i was um team crash for sure yeah. my inner uh internalized homophobia plus my um pride in my white guy understanding what nobody else can understand about race (laughs) um, really, really emboldened me.